Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colbrook. Today I'll be speaking with Anne Kornhauser, author of Debating the American State, Liberal Anxieties and the New Leviathan, 1930-1970, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2015. Kornhauser examines the interaction between liberal thought and the rise of the administrative state and the resulting legitimacy issues that arose for democracy, the rule of law and individual autonomy. Anne, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to the topic of the administrative state. Sure. So I actually was a journalist for a few years in between college and graduate school. I went to college um, at Barnard slash Columbia um, as well as graduate school at Columbia so, but I took uh, a break. I was the editor of the Columbia newspaper, and I took a break to be a journalist in Washington. I'm also from Berkeley, California, and the combination of being from Berkeley and working in Washington in the late 80s, early 90s, um, gave me a very interesting perspective on liberalism. Mm. Uh, but And here, let me just be clear, especially because we're dealing with multiple audiences, that by liberalism, very generally speaking, I mean, as I say in the book, statist liberalism, the liberalism that, you know, uh, it came out of the New Deal, to some extent, the progressives in the American setting. So not economic, laissez-faire liberalism, but rather political, you know, activist state liberalism, okay? Um, so, so roughly speaking, social democracy in in Europe now that's a debate currently but it's it's on the spectrum of right social democratic states now um, in Berkeley California growing up in the 70s um, liberalism was a rather dirty word from the left uh, Berkeley kind of stayed in the 60s for an extra decade or so and um, so I was sort of primed to think of it as um, a reformist, you know, not radical uh, ideology. And then I get to Washington after college, and I find that liberalism is considered at that time too far to the left, right? So when Clinton uh, becomes president, and obviously before under Reagan and Bush, um, liberalism is is seen as um, somehow uh, overly generous with public resources, too interested in intervening in the economy and other aspects of people's lives. So I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, why does liberalism have kind of a bad name all the way around and also seems to be under attack? Um, and so then I, I went to graduate school at Columbia with the idea that I wanted to write about liberalism in the 20th century and sort of what it meant and why it seemed politically on the defensive. Um, 
And I quickly uh, came to understand that, um, at least in the middle decades, and I think still today, that the issue is, or a major issue with American political liberalism is its relationship to um, what many scholars call the administrative state, which is to say the rather large centralized government that grew up in here uh, starting in the 20th century. Mm. Great, thanks very much. So um, could you just outline briefly for us the rise of the administrative state and the history of that in the sort of uh, late 19th and early 20th century and then what was so distinctive about the 1930s as a decade for the exploding state power in America? Sure, so I'll be honest and it won't be so surprising to at least some of your listeners that it is not, as I say in the book, it is not uh, uncontroversial to sort of start the story of the modern administrative state in the United States in um, the 1930s. And in fact, I had a whole chapter um, about the progressive period, which I cut for reasons of space, but also because it seemed since I was trying to distinguish in some senses the thirties from this earlier period of the late 19th century and early 20th, it seemed like a lot of quote unquote throat clearing. But let me explain why I felt there was something different about the 1930s while acknowledging that scholars, historians, um, and political scientists, uh, basically, uh, do not agree on what the or when the origins rather of this state um, can be placed or ought to be placed. Um, some there's a, a book called The Roots of American Bureaucracy, I believe, by William Nelson that puts it at sort of the very beginning. <laughs> so there, you know, the question is: there's always bureaucracy, there's always public bureaucracy, and the question is, though, to me, when does the state become a bureaucratic state or an administrative state, which is to say, for me, when does sort of the ideology of administration, which I can explain if you'd like, as well as the structural requisites for a, an administrative or bureaucratic state, when do they kind of congeal and take over? So um, you can see, you know, notoriously, of course, the United States was slow in um, developing its central centralized state and central government um, relative to a number of European countries. Um, and I won't go into the reasons for that, which themselves are complicated and contested, but where it is possible to begin to see strong central power that is uh, coming from administrators and the executive is in the Civil War. Not surprisingly, war does that, right? You can't really deliberate a lot about war or, you know, have the courts run more. So it's administrative and executive power that generally conducts war. But so the Civil War, though, establishes the Freedmen's Bureau, for example, and it has, there's an occupation of the American South to try to get it into line after slavery. Um, there are... Uh, medical services, there's just an array of sort of federal services that hadn't been there before. And then there are pensions, 
that continue on, a rather large pension system. But that to me is not the administrative state yet. In, in no small part because most of those agencies, like the Freedmen's Bureau, go away. Similarly, um, after World War One, when there's another big mobilization, right, of um, agency government and administrative government and executive power, um, a lot of that gets demobilized after World War One. So um, some of the ideas are certainly there in the progressives. Um, uh, in the United States in the early 20th century and some of the mechanisms. There's a, uh, a food uh, administration. There's a, the Interstate Commerce Commission is, is notoriously the initial administrative organ, which is in the late 19th century. But there are, you know, there are a variety of regulatory agencies, uh, but not a lot. And again, not to me... Um, the dominant way that American governance at the center is conducted. To me, that that happens in the 1930s. Now, why? Really, um, two two reasons: scale, so that you know you get dozens and dozens now of agencies, boards, and commissions, and you get a much greater, uh, much more powerful presidency that that controls at least many of these agencies, the executive branch, um, but you also get, in my view, a, an administrative ideology is the phrase I use in the book, which is a justification, essentially, for this form of government, which is to say the government of executive power and bureaucrats, uh, rules rather than laws, uh, uh, the dispensing of, of services and jobs and you know the state as a as a compensatory state and a regulatory state, and then eventually a warfare state. Uh, this is all justified much more cohesively and coherently, it seems to me, in the 1930s. In no small part because they're faced, the government is faced with a massive economic crisis, the Great Depression. Hmm, fantastic. So uh, what tensions did this new administrative state introduce into the American polity, particularly in relationship to uh, the rule of law and democracy? Right. So, and this is uh, what interested me. I, it, when I saw, this to me was the answer to my question about why am I seeing uh, sort of a lack of coherence to American liberalism? as a political persuasion. Um, and that I think is because the, the liberal state, the new deal state, and, and I use the term liberal in part simply because Franklin Roosevelt used that term. And in part, he used it to distinguish, uh, what the new dealers were doing from what the progressives had done. And mainly because the progressives were moralists, uh, and saw the state as a, educative as an educative uh uh mechanism mm. um and also because they were more interested in direct democracy than that is initiative and referenda etc than the new dealers who felt they had to work quickly um the 
tensions with democracy and the rule of law uh, come about because really administrative governance is a kind of command and control governance, which is to say it's not deliberative, it's not elective, right? Uh, bureaucrats are appointed. Um, it's not particularly transparent, excuse me, and it's not um, based on the consent of the governed, uh, either in the uh, election of the personnel, but also in uh, the way that policies are developed. There's a new book called The Policy State, uh, written by two political scientists, Stephen Skoranek and Karen Oren, where... Mm. And in some ways, I think the policy state is, is another name for the administrative state. And, and uh, they make a lot of similar points about how kind of mysterious, right, and un, uh, invisible, I should say, to the public, um, these, this policy making is, right? The lawmaking of a legislature, you know, at least we see the, the broad strokes of that, right? And we, we see the hearings if we want. Um, and there's uh, a much more obvious way to lobby, uh, for better or worse, uh, representatives. But when administrators make rules, which are, you know, policies, to implement that legislation, uh, which is really where the rubber hits the road, um, that's really done behind the scenes. And so that's not very democratic in many different ways. Um, and then legally, it's also um, often done with a much greater discretion uh, by administrators and certainly the president. Um, so you get executive orders, as we're very familiar with. By the way, if I might just digress for a second, um, I was in looking over this book in preparation for this podcast interview, I was struck actually, so this came out in 2015, as you mentioned, but obviously written before them. And I was struck by the number of issues that are, you know, sort of coming up now uh, here in the United States and to some extent in, in, in Britain as well with Brexit, right? The, the bureaucratic European Union is telling us what to do and yeah. it's unaccountable, right? Um, and again, issues of the, the rule of law here. And I think that, you know, some, some, for some of the same reasons, a powerful executive being one of them and a, not, a lack of concern for legal norms being another and for some different reasons. Anyway, well, so, I just thought so, I would uh, note that. You probably noticed that as well. Obama and Trump's uh, heavy use of uh, executive orders being one instance of that and it being the discussion exactly, of right. the, the executive. Now, now, now Obama did this as well, to some extent, especially in the area of immigration. So I'm afraid, you know, my, my feeling is, and this is, a, I guess, another reason I would date, I would periodize the administrative state to the 30s, is that um, executive power, including executive orders, um, really expanded, as I mentioned. Um, Roosevelt uh, felt he had to, uh, again, in the context of what he dubbed, not incorrectly, an emergency, uh, an economic emergency, and then the war presented a different kind of emergency or crisis, um, which is, I do think, can be a good reason for concentrating power, for making decisions quickly, but at the same time, it invites, as we've seen, 
the use, and here you have Trump doing this again. There's a crisis at the border. You know, the use of a crisis politics to justify uh, command and control governing. Mm. Um, so let me just say another thing about the rule of law, um, which is that so legislation in our country, we have judicial review of legislation uh, by the Supreme Court, which is to say if a case presents itself, if, if legislation is challenged as not conforming to the Constitution, the court will rule, and this happened notoriously during the New Deal quite a bit, uh, excuse me, whether that legislation or law is constitutional with administrative rulemaking and policy making, um, often those, uh, the checks on that are, um, with, uh, are, are more informal. So rather than formal law, you, you have, um, uh, administrative courts that are, uh, less, uh, rigorous in, in their review process, but also just, um, fewer challenges to administrative governance because it's not as clear how one would challenge it. You can challenge rulemaking and that has happened. But um, generally speaking, the, the, the policymaking and the rulemaking of the bureaucrats, um, and certainly for different reasons, so the, the, the executive orders and the war making of the president are subject to much less judicial scrutiny. Mm, great. So um, you term many of the actors you would, uh, you examine sort of sympathetic critics of, of the yes. administrative state. So I was wondering first what exactly that means in terms of their broader relationship with the state and with liberalism, and also what distinguished them from kind of business conservative critics who are very much anti-New Deal and are trying to, uh, as much as they possibly can, to stop any expansion of the state. Right. Um, well, so by sympathetic, I mean sympathetic to the project of an expanding state in order to regulate the economy and um, serve people's welfare, uh, both of which were in pretty deep trouble, obviously, in the 1930s. Um, and so the project itself, uh, unlike the business conservatives who are concerned then and now with the very, um, with the very project, right, of regulation uh, and oversight of business, um, the sympathetic critics were generally academics, uh, intellectuals, journalists, um, and to some extent, people working in government itself, who um, realized, and that's why the word Leviathan, by the way, is in my title, it was not used pejoratively then, it was used though to suggest, I'm sorry, they realized that uh, something different was afoot in the 1930s, and, and just on scale alone. And, and there is how I, uh, to go back to your earlier question, I do think that's a hugely important difference from earlier times. I mean, the, the expansion of the executive branch and administrative agencies was unparalleled, right? And and just and, and the projects that they got involved in 
uh, with industry, with agriculture, with job creation, right? The things we all know about in the New Deal, but don't think necessarily about how they were um, implemented. Um, that scale um, gave even supporters of the New Deal and state intervention, um, if not pause, that too sometimes, um, they realized that the relationship between that kind of state and constitutional democracy was not an easy one. Mm. Because constitutional democracy, the you know, at its most basic, is about at least some limits, right, on state power um, in the name of law uh, as well as democracy. Um, and and legal norms that constrain how governance is conducted. And those two things, that is to say, with regularity, right, with predictability, uh, with visibility, equally, in the sense that, you know, like cases are treated alike. Uh, anybody going to court will have certain, at least, procedural, right, mm. uh, uh, procedural rights afforded to them, and and there was an argument at the time by these some of these sympathetic critics critics that that procedural legal equality made a substantive difference because that was one of the very few ways that an average person or a worker could gain a, some sort of equal footing with powerful economic interests. Now, you know, that may sound naive, and it's, 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 it's very often not true, but it, it, but it can be true, right? Mm -hmm. You can go into court and challenge um, corporate power and win. Mm -hmm. uh, so sort of staying on this theme, uh, how did the American occupation of Germany in particular exacerbate some of the tensions we've been describing in terms of how a constitutional democracy can be founded by a military force. Right. So it, to some extent, when the debate uh, about how important uh, loyalty to legal norms should be under conditions of war, um, to some extent, it was abstract um, because, you know, the that nothing changed really in the way the, the government was being run at home. But in the occupation, um, and I look at Germany uh, because of the more active debate about uh, the rule of law, um, in part because of the emigres and in part because the structures that were, had preceded the Nazi takeover, you know, had, were, were democratic and, and, and uh, legalistic in Weimar. Um, so uh, the occupation, though, uh, gave these German thinkers and, and Americans a chance to, on the ground, right, test out or work out ideas about where did the, how far can you go um, in constricting democracy and uh, the rule of law that is law as constraining, right, political mm -hmm. and military power, how far can you go in constricting those in the name of ultimately 
establishing or reestablishing in the case of Germany, right, a constitutional democracy. So destroying the village in order to save it, to use the Vietnam reference, you know, how close do you come to destroying democracy uh, in, in, uh, in order to save it? And, and this issue, interestingly, had come up in the United States, and this was noticed by some of these German thinkers, such as Carl Lowenstein, um, uh, after the Civil War, when the North in the United States occupies militarily the South, to try to get the South, in effect, to become democratic, in that case, mainly to include four million former slaves, African Americans, in the polity, right? Well, not all four million, because some were children, but uh, just to give you a sense, it was a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And they had been, of course, absolutely excluded from government raising the question of whether that was a democracy in the first place. But um, the it was a very complicated and ultimately, in the short run, unsuccessful attempt to, so that there was a debate about, can we let the former Confederates back into the government? You know, they left after all, it was treason. Um, should we punish them, uh, purge them? make them take loyalty oaths, and all of these things came up again in the context of Germany. So denazification is what it was called. And the question was, how far did the American occupying authorities go in cooperation with local German uh, authorities who were installed by the Americans? In the, in, and, and by the way, just to take a step back, maybe many people know that Germany was divided into zones of occupation. Uh, by the Allies, and so I'm right now just talking about what the Americans did in their zone, but the British had their own zone, the French, and of course the Soviets. Berlin itself, by the way, was divided into four as well. Um, so the issue in the the issues in the occupation had to do again with who gets who is excluded from democracy and why and how. Um, so that was one big set of issues. And the, the German emigres argued for a very, actually, a very, quite comprehensive exclusion because they felt that without that, restoring democracy would be impossible because too many anti-democratic right, forces from within uh, would ultimately undermine it. Um, and that, but that was very tricky. How do you say to citizens of a state, uh, you can't participate in politics, right? Your voice can't be heard. Well, that may sound silly or, or too forgiving in the case of former Nazis, but um, who is a former Nazi? Mm. <laughs> they actually passed around questionnaires asking people to describe their relationship to the Nazi party. And, you know, some people were automatic members of the Nazi party, so it was just very complicated. But also, and, and, and extremely bureaucratic, if you think about it, right? It's a social engineering exercise. And so that was one issue. And then, um, and one big issue, because, you know, if how if, do you set up democratic institutions by excluding huge numbers of people? And who decides? And how is that legitimate? Um, and then, and by the way, I should have said, 
that a number of these same people, and let me just give you a few names. I, I mentioned Carl Lowenstein, but also Franz Neumann, who's quite no, well known for his book, Behemoth, um, about the Nazi state, uh, Ernst Frankel, uh, Friedrich, uh, Carl Friedrich, excuse me, um, Hans Kelsen, they all um, go back to Germany during the occupation and advise, or almost all of them, advise the American military government about how to to conduct this occupation. So they're there mm-hmm. on the ground. Um, and then some of them come back and do it. But the point is, this isn't an abstraction anymore. Um, the other big issue was punishment, right? Um, the rule of law. How do we hold, whom should we hold legally accountable? And given that the people conducting, in this case, uh, I'll just talk about the Nuremberg trial. There were many other war crimes trials. These are the allies, of course. Um, so it's the victors in a war, right? Uh, meeting out justice on the vanquished. And there again, uh, how much fealty to normal legal norms and procedures uh, should there be? And also, who should be held accountable? And interestingly, Neumann, for example, argued that in in a totalitarian state such as Nazi Germany, um, you shouldn't hold sort of the average Nazi accountable for their actions because they were going to be killed, he argued, right, if they didn't, um, if they didn't follow through with their orders. So that the people you should focus on is the people doing the ordering Mm -hmm. in terms of getting justice, right? Now, the Nuremberg trials only focused on very high level of issues, but who should be included in this quest for justice was was a key question but also how much did the 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 nuremberg operation the nuremberg trials follow essentially anglo-american um legal structures and the the answer was somewhat but not entirely so you didn't necessarily get uh you didn't if you were a nazi on trial get all the rights that you would in a in a court in, say, England or the United States. And um, there had to be a justification for that as well. You know, why not? Mm-hmm. And the, ans- the answer was, essentially, this isn't, these aren't normal times. <laughs> this, isn't an, uh, this isn't a normal criminal justice proceeding. And in fact, the law of the Nuremberg trials had to be, um, had to be, well, I don't want to use the word made up, but I guess it really was, you know, established uh, for the first time. So it's sort of written, having... written from scratch. Exactly. For the most part. Yeah. So aggressive war um, and uh, uh, the humanitarian violations, uh, these were not, hadn't really been prosecuted before. Hmm. Okay, so your uh, final chapter deals with the philosophy of John Rawls. Um, I was first wondering uh, whether you could just give a, a brief description of who he was uh, and what his major ideas were, and then how his uh, thinking related to this tradition of uh, sympathetic critics of the administrative state. Ah, yes. So 
uh, right. Now we've gone through the first sort of section of the book was about administration and the New Deal state, right? And administration at home. And then we go abroad to the occupation and, and the war effort. And then um, the last chapter is about John Rawls. And um, one might wonder, now you're turning to a single individual and uh, somebody who's really, whose writings are coming to, to, to focus really in the 1970s. But um, I have reasons for that, and I will give them to you. So John Rawls is, was an American political and moral philosopher. Um, who uh, died, I don't remember when he died, but it wasn't, within the last 20 years, it wasn't terribly long ago. And, um, but he came of age during World War II. He fought in World War II uh, on the Pacific front. And that, I think, greatly affected him. He's probably the most important, well, I guess one could argue, you could, you could argue for John Dewey, but he's certainly one of the, several most important uh, philosophers and political theorists, political thinkers of the 20th century in the United States. Um, and so just that alone, you know, was, was um, merited some, uh, a look. Uh, but then, so he fights at World War II. He then, um, he goes to Princeton to study, uh, which is important because at Princeton, there's um, a lot of game theory uh, being developed. And so he's studying philosophy at Prince. He also studies philosophy at Oxford for a year where he's introduced to the burgeoning field of analytic philosophy and um, comes back and is a, is a philosophy professor at various places and for uh, the longest period um, at Harvard. Now, he's, great. he's best known for bringing back social contract theory, which hadn't really been around uh, uh, since, really, uh, Kant. <laughs> um, so uh, he brings it back um, to um, engage in a legitimating exercise for uh, constitutional democracy. Um, he didn't, he's an ideal theorist, so he's very abstract in a lot of what he writes. So it's justice as fairness is his big concept. And then he derives that uh, notion from um, a social contract uh, situation, which I can describe a little bit more. Um, but let me just say first that um, I became more and more interested in him in relation to my question about the relationship between the administrative state and constitutional democracy, because I think that although he didn't write about the United States per se, with a few exceptions, because he was writing about ideally, right, how would it work to find the fair principles to govern a, a constitutional democracy? And he didn't even say constitutional democracy at first. He, he finally acknowledges that that's what he's interested in legitimating. But um, social contract theory is a, a, one of the few mechanisms we have in political theory that can legitimate um, a, a particular kind of political arrangement, right? Because it posits that there is, at some point, 
or in some way a consent to uh, the arrangements. Now, many people, and, and that is done uh, hypothetically uh, by Rawls by saying in in a certain set of ideal conditions in which nobody knows what role they will play in society, whether they'll be rich or poor, you know, uh, a worker, a business owner. Um, what was what could the consensus be? What could everyone agree on as principles that would inform the institutions and practices of society in which people would actually have a say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, famously, you could do this in Hobbes's case where people didn't really have a say, but the, still, the, the ultimate legitimation of his authoritarian society was was that the people, you know. Uh, thought that would be the best, the best uh, uh, form of governance. Now, um, most secure. So in Rawls's case, he goes back to social contract theory. Why? Why, after 150 years, do we have uh, someone starting to think this way again? I mean, uh, my I'm largely an intellectual historian. I guess I should have mentioned that, a legal historian. And so I, I'm very interested in what enables people to think in way in certain ways at, at a given time, right? How do you historicize thinking? Well, you do that by trying to figure out what sorts of problems the thinker was interested in and how they sought to solve them. And so Rawls was is generally thought of as not really trying to solve real-world problems, but philosophical ones. So again, how do we derive principles of justice from sort of a rational uh, procedure in which, you know, people can consent, to which people can consent? But if you if you look more closely, I, I think you can see Rawls trying to work out really whether the society he lived in, what was legitimate about it and what was, uh, what was, uh, wrong with it what was not fair what was uh, what what institutions needed to be reformed which you know ultimately practices uh, needed to be introduced to make it more fair now by fair that's a tricky word um Rawls meant that two things he, he had a procedural notion of fairness which is simply that that everybody gets a say in 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 their in consenting to their arrangements but it also meant to him um that in order for that to happen there had to be some fundamental liberty right to Mm -hmm. speak and to 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 control autonomy to control your life but also and some fundamental equality so that the inequalities are not so great as to uh silence people or or uh, effectively push them to the margins or even outside of the democratic project. Um, and I thought at least one of the reasons that he was thinking this way at this time, and by this time I mean in the 1950s, I should say, because this is when he comes up with the basic ideas that inform his best-known book, A Theory of Justice, um, from the 1970s. Um, it seemed to me that there was enough similarity in some of his thought to what I had seen in the Germans and in the 
sympathetic critics in the New Deal, um, that he too was concerned in part about the administrative state's impact on uh, democracy, the rule of law, and in his case, particularly individual autonomy. So uh, moving forward, I guess, into the 1960s and the 1970s, what were the influences of Rawls? What was the influence even of Rawls' ideas during that period? Good question. Um, (laughs) So, you know, he... The, the issue, although his book, A Theory of Justice, um, 1970, sells incredibly, sold and continues to sell incredibly well, he, he wasn't exactly a public intellectual, okay? He was a sort of closeted academic philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to say what his influence, it's harder to say what his influence was uh, than it might be, you know, a more visible that person and someone, frankly, who wrote in a more accessible way. Um, certainly, he was um, followed by uh, legal academics and some legal practitioners and some in political science and political theory. Um, but my interest in him actually was less in terms of his influence, something I find very difficult in most cases to prove um, in is as a matter of intellectual history and more that in the parallels of this comprehensive thinker to some of the problems and tensions that had been um, that had been defined by the sympathetic critics of which of whom I think Rawls was one but um, it's harder to see because he this the social contract theory right is his main contribution. And there, his main concern seems to be how can we, um, how can we ensure that the institutions of our society are both fair in how they work, but also um, are actually reasonably accepted by people who may not have much of a voice. Um, so that I would say he he was more of a an influence on other academics mm-hmm. uh, than anything else. But I also thought that uh, he was worth discussing because he does more than anyone else in the book, I think, to try to resolve uh, these fundamental tensions that we've been talking about. Uh, he doesn't. Nobody could do that. It's you know, if we did that, it would be like learning. Uh, really understanding the brain or something. <laughs> uh, but um, I thought that his efforts were the most systematic anyway. And they, i uh, just say one more thing. Um, that is because, in my view, he paid much more attention to consent of people, by which I do not mean literal, right? Well, consent, which really takes place in voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in how people could even have the opportunity, right, to uh, critique existing institutions, which to me was as, if not more important to him than legitimating them. He's often known as someone who legitimates the liberal state. 
Um, but I think he's also quite concerned about it in some of the ways we've been talking about it. it concerned about the lack of power of Congress and the law, and the lawmaking power relative to the administrative power. Concerned about um, uh, command and control uh, governance, um, and I show that especially with his earlier work um, and. He also is concerned about the limits of, um, of um, accepting your uh, society's uh, policies and institutions. And so he has a lot on, on civil disobedience and conscientious objection, for example, and why those, um, which are not part of ideal theory, because they obviously go to the actual society, but why those are justifiable departures even under a regime that is, um, um, as he would put it, mostly just. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you very much, Anne, for being on the podcast today. I found that uh, discussion very interesting and very varied. Um, so we just have time to ask you one more question, which is, what are you working on now? Ah, good question. Um, so I'm still interested in um, really the conditions under which um, – democracy and democratization um, um, are um, evolve and also and the intellectual and legal justifications for them. And uh, I know this sounds trendy because democracy seems like everybody's interested in democracy these days because it seems so fragile. But uh, actually, this uh, project came directly out of uh, uh, the book we just spoke about and it and its a tentative title is the force of democracy and again looking at um the relationship between democratization or democracy and coercion mm. um but in this case in the context of nation nation building abroad the united states attempts to remake or uh build institutions in other countries starting with germany and japan um but then in going all the way up to iraq uh, there are various different kinds of uh, intellectual uh, and political and legal streams that feed into uh, the justification for that kind of um, intervention under the name of democracy and the rule of law. Um, and that's what I'm going to be looking at now. Great. It sounds uh, really fascinating, sort of doubling down on some of the themes you explored uh, during a discussion on the uh, occupation of Germany. Um well, thanks again for being on the program, and uh, yeah. May I just say one more thing, actually, yeah. about to bring this up to the present, which is uh, the administrative state is uh, in the crosshairs of uh, conservatives, especially judicial conservatives right now. Um, infamously, Steve Bannon, who's not a judicial conservative, but called for the deconstruction of the administrative state. Uh, this is a whole new level of hostility to it. Uh, I I wrote this book because I thought that it was not a straightforward uh, uh, positive good to have all this, you know, bureaucracy and um, and transparent governance. But uh, you do need it to have a regulatory state. You do need it to have a welfare state, and you do need it to have a warfare state. And I do think at least the first two are are often justifiable. Um, but right now there's a project in 
in American judicial circles, and you're seeing, you're beginning to see it on the U.S. Supreme Court to try to radically constrain the administrative state because uh, it is too uh, involved in regulation is the main the main concern by conservative. Mm, fascinating. So thank you uh, again for being on the, the program today. And that was a really interesting conversation. And I look forward to seeing uh, your new research when it comes out. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's been a pleasure.